Oh my. You know, it's uh, walking into this series, um, it, it made, made me think about, about our marriage. Um, Holly and I have been married for 17 and a half years, and, uh, our, uh, and everyone has been better than the next, and it just keeps getting better and better and better and better, or the previous, I mean. That would have mean, yeah, well, anyway. Um, but I'll go back to our honeymoon, and we were uh, in Cozumel, and it was a great, uh, a, a great place to honeymoon. And I remember um, I had taken this sailing class at Baylor, and um, I, I, I saw there were sunfishes that you could rent on the side. And so I was like, oh, I'm going to take her sailing. This is going to be so much fun. And so uh, we, we get on a sailboat, and uh, we head out into the ocean. And, um, and we're, you know, we're, we're just kind of getting out, and the wind kind of takes the sail. And we start, and, I'm, and we're, I'll just be honest, kind of out of control. Um, <clears throat> And, um, and, and I'll be brutally honest with you and say that uh, I think there was only other, uh, one other boat in the entire Gulf of Mexico at that time, and I hit it. Um, so it was, uh, it was a very, it was just a very romantic time as I rammed into this other guy's boat, uh, completely out of control. Uh, turned out, looked down, and, and <laughs> true story, um, and she's still married to me and still loves me in spite of all of it. And, um, and I looked down and realized I didn't have the centerboard in. Uh, that's really important. Uh, the centerboard allows you to get into the water, right? If you are a sailor, you understand, so that your boat has the ability to stay anchored in place and allow the rudder and the sail to do what is necessary. And the centerboard was not in. I had not put it into the hole there in the center of the boat. And I think what, when, we, when we talk about marriage, when we think about marriage, what happens is, even as a society, we're like all over the page, right? About what it is, uh, what it isn't, who can get married, who can't. And one of the reasons why we're all over the map on this is because we as a society seem to have lost the centerboard. We fail to put that down so that it can really drive us where God intended it to go. And so we painted this picture for you tonight, and it's going to be this way for the next two weeks, right? Uh, two more weeks after this, uh, almost kind of preparing, or preparing our thoughts and our minds as if we've entered into the wedding ceremony for just a moment, right? So you've got the lights, and you've got the drapes, and you've got, you know, and, and so here we are. We're in this moment, and we're going to relive a few passages tonight that you have heard in a moment that looks kind of like this. All right. And I'm going to read through some of these passages. You're going to go, oh, yeah. But my challenge to you is that you don't allow your mind to just go into neutral because I hope what these words will do is make sure that our center board is secure, whether we are married or whether we are not. Because whether we're talking about a center board or an anchor for our faith, as we've discussed over the months here, it's so very critical that we understand what God's perspective is. In society today, culture, religion, politics, family of origin, variety of factors influencing thoughts on marriage. I want us to pray one more time. God, my prayer to you right now is that you would help us refresh our perspective, renew our determination as husbands, as wives, that, that we would be who you've called us to be. That this time would drive us toward choices that prepare us for these roles in the next stage of life, whatever that is. And whether we are married or not, that God, you would deepen our understanding of who you are in this process. 
because we understand that's when we are truly transformed in Jesus' name. The topical New American Standard Bible says this about marriage. Marriage was the first divine institution of Scripture and the only one established for mankind before the entrance of sin. It is the foundational institution of human society. So a biblical understanding of marriage, Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his image. He created him in the image of God. Now you might think that's an odd place to start. Why didn't we start in Ephesians 5? Why didn't we start in maybe Genesis 2? Why don't we start in Genesis 1? Well, because I want you to see the language here. I want you to see the plurality of the language because in these first few verses of scripture, we find God describing himself in the plural. And when the account, you see us, our, our likeness, it's, it's as if he jump starts the scripture and immediately wants us to see he is in relationship with himself. And when the account moves to man's creation, it describes us being created what? In his image. So we're created not to be an island unto ourselves, but to have relationship. Let's keep reading chapter 2, 18. Then the Lord said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper as his complement. So in the first two chapters, what do we find God saying? Oh, he creates this. That's good. He creates this. That's good. He creates this. That's good. Then he gets to this one part here. Everything's created is good until we get to man being alone. And God utters this phrase. It is not good for the man to be alone. Now, let's not read more into that than we need to. The scripture does not, therefore, imply that single people are living a not good life or that widows or widowers are living a not good life. The context is really quite simple. To continue on with human life as God had created it, it was not good for man to be alone. No companionship, no opportunity for reproduction. Mankind was not going to exist the way that God had planned. So, verse 19. So the Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky, brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found as his complement. Let's pause for a minute and just say, aren't we glad? Comedians all over the planet have had a field day with this thought, right? I believe I speak for all men when I say, thank you, Adam, for still being discontent at this point. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over man, and he slept. And God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. And then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife And they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. Jesus refers to this start of the marriage relationship in the Gospel of Matthew. Verse 4 of chapter 19. Haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female. And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together... Man must not separate. Let's stop for just a minute. 
Because this brings us, quite frankly, to some questions and answers that we still struggle with in the 21st century. Even in the very beginning of our discussion about marriage. Where did the idea of marriage come from? Well, we find in the first two chapters of Genesis that God invented it. But we still struggle as a society, don't we? We struggle because we look at, well, this whole male-female marriage union thing. I mean, maybe that might be the best way. Maybe that might be a way. But is it really the way? And I would say God designed it that way. But we struggle with that as a society. Was marriage meant to be temporary or was it meant to be permanent? According to what Jesus says here, it looks like it was intended to be permanent. Looks to me that what we've read here is that, yes, there might very well be some struggle in our society about that one too, right? And some of us have had some very personal connection with this. And I get that. And the question that we would ask immediately is, is God a God of grace? Absolutely. Of course, but this marriage concept was not designed with an easy way out clause attached to the back. As a matter of fact, what we find in the scripture here is that God went to great lengths to show us that leaving and uniting and becoming one flesh was to be a permanent thing. And yet in our society, we sign prenups and we do all kinds of things, almost planning that it's going to be temporary. What happens in marriage? Well, there's the leaving and the be united and the becoming one flesh. We leave our parents. We join together by asking, by taking responsibility for each other's welfare, right? And we become one in flesh in intimacy and in commitment and sexual union. And, and this is explicitly reserved, though, this relationship for marriage. But our society struggles with that. Yet another challenging concept. I mean... We, we pay money. We pay our own money, even as, as followers of Jesus, right? To go to the movie theater and watch movies that highlight friends with benefits. And, and we laugh at it and think, oh, well, that's kind of cute and that's kind of fun. And what a neat love story. And, but, but we're missing the point that that's not a biblical understanding of where the sexual relationship belongs. So... I just think at the very beginning of our series, we, we got to come to grips with the reality that a biblical understanding of marriage is not something that we just endorse wholeheartedly as a culture, is it? Unfortunately, it's not. And then you throw in all the other misunderstandings about marriage. Unrealistic expectations. Well, I thought this was going to be easier. Well, I thought the romance that I feel was going to help me glide through all of the challenges. I thought she knew I was going to make, I was going to make most of the decisions. I thought he would be able to read my mind better than that. I mean, I thought she understood that football and golf were non-negotiables. I thought he would share everything that was going on in his mind with me. Does he even have a mind? Is he even thinking? So we have this misunderstanding going on. The if onlys. If only we had more money. If only we had more time. If only he were more like me. If only we had got married later. If only we had had kids, hadn't had kids so quickly. If only he would pay more attention to me. If only she would be more aware of my needs. And we have this misunderstanding that we believe that if all of our if onlys were met, then it would be perfect. 
misunderstanding, a role of conflict. Conflict occurs, and then instead of seeing it as an opportunity to grow and get closer to becoming the husband and wife that God designed us to be, instead, couples uh, allow conflict to divide us and to create doubts about the relationship and begin to highlight the imperfections in the other person. I think at, at its very core, we, we misunderstand love. The difference between human love and divine love. So ultimately, couples fail to understand the enormous difference that there really is between the love that we're able to generate, whatever that may be, in and of ourselves versus the love that God offers. Paul writes in Ephesians 5.31, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. huh? We'll, We'll come back to that in a minute. To sum, up, to sum up, each of you is to love his wife as himself. And the wife is to respect her husband. Understanding love. When you think about love stories in the Bible, or portions of the Bible that really highlight a really intense love, I don't know where your mind goes. I was thinking about Song of Solomon, right? I mean, what, what amazing love poetry there. What amazing verbiage is used as they describe each other, as they describe their relationship. I came across this picture uh, a while back, and it's this, this literal picture of what, what, what the female in that relationship would have looked like based on how he described her. And let's, let's toss that up on the, on the screen for just a minute here. Um, here it comes. Uh, is it coming? It disappeared. Well, if it if you were to see it right now, you would see, <laughs> you would see a picture of uh, what seemingly is some sort of uh, person. Only they have like say like a flock of goats for hair, because that's what he said. And uh, we all know, obviously, if we woke up in the morning and told our spouse, "Wow, your hair is looking great." I mean, it's like a flock of goats. <laughs> or I mean, you have the most amazing temples. I mean, they look like pomegranates. Wow, how amazing is that? Your teeth are like shoon, you know. I, I, no, I, it's just crazy, crazy talk. We don't understand that. I mean, we're like, oh, there we go. There she is. Is she not beautiful? Look at that. Look, lips like scarlet thread. Neck like the Tower of David. Now, that's when you go on your date tonight, make sure that you let her know. She's got a neck that looks like the Tower of David. Wow. You say, Randy, why, why did you go there? Well, I don't know. I think it's a funny picture, but... I also think that when we jump into our own love story, we get so very confused. We get confused, the emotion of it, the commitment of it, the assurance of it, the sexual aspect of it, the longevity of it. And whether or not you're entering into a relationship for the first time right now, or whether or not you've been in a relationship for a long, long, long time, maybe it really would be helpful for us to look at love in a little bit more literal way. Maybe not quite that literal when it comes to the physical description of a lover to another. But what if we look at love in a much more specific way as defined in Scripture? Because I think that's where we need to be. In 1 John 4, 7, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. When I was like four or five years old, I remember in church one of the very first songs that I ever remember singing was this one. Praise him, praise him, all you little children. God is love, 
God is love. Praise him, praise him, all ye little children. God is love. God is love. Catchy. Makes you go, ah. God is love. How cool is that? But you know, it's taken me a bunch of years to figure out, even begin to figure out what all that means. And I'm still not there. But I know this. That verse in 1 John 4, 7, it tells me that God is love. And unless I'm wrapping my arms around him, I have no ability to love another. Not like that. I think, unfortunately, we're sadly mistaken if we even try. 1 Corinthians 13 defines the love this way. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not conceited, does not act improperly, is not selfish, is not provoked, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. So maybe we ought to just stop right here and say, are we receiving that from the Lord? Am I walking in his word? Is his spirit indwelling my life so that the fruit of his spirit is pressing through my actions and my reactions? Because if that's happening, then my marriage is going to be filled with God's love. The love that was just described right there in a very literal way. You know, understanding the purpose of marriage is kind of what we're about in this first opening on the series and, 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 of course, there's a, there's a purpose that's functional, right? There's this purpose that's the leave, the cleave, the become one flesh. The human race continues. Sexual urges are fulfilled. People are brought up. Children are brought up in the best possible environment, right? The functional component. But there are these two other components that I fear we often lose sight of. The first one being the sacramental purpose of marriage. What is a sacrament? You know, in, a, in, a, in a few minutes, Jono is going to come back up and lead us in a couple of more worship songs, and we're going to have a time of communion. And, um, and it's an open time for you to come and, and partake, and, 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 and these elements that we take are, are, are a sacramental moment for us, where it points us to what? It points us to the grace of God. It points us to the cross. It points us to what God has done for us. It points us to God being the reconciler, a picture of what God was willing to do in order to have the relationship to man restored. The earthly church fathers like Augustine recognized this analogy of reconciliation as what Augustine described, the highest aim of marriage. Augustine suggested there were benefits, a variety of benefits, not friends with benefits, but benefits to marriage. But the highest benefit of all that he described was this sacramental aspect he went so far as to say as, as couples remain married, even in the imperfectness of their relationship, they embody this relationship that Christ has with the church. This ongoing commitment. I think we have a choice. 
We have a choice to see marriage from God's perspective or from man's perspective. Man's perspective has us entering marriage relationship and sticking to it as long as we can. Oh, we're, we're going we're gonna to hold out. We're going to stay as long as we can. As long, well, as long as we can, yeah, as long as we're comfortable and as long as the desires are met and as long as expectations are met. Or at least until the kids get out of the house. We're going we're to hold out. But when we take it on from God's perspective, we cherish marriage because it brings glory to God and because it points a sinful world to a reconciling creator. God invites us to see marriage as a word picture of the most important news humans have ever received, that we have been invited into this divine relationship with God. And both the Old Testament and the New Testament scream out that imagery. It's really pretty cool. Isaiah 54, 5, indeed, your husband is your maker. His name is Yahweh of hosts, and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. Isaiah 62, 4 and 5, you will no longer be called deserted, and your land will not be called desolate. Instead, you will be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land will be married. You see, whether it's talking in Scripture about the union between God and Israel, the Old Testament, or the union between God, between Christ and his church, the New Testament, this imagery of marriage is throughout Continuing on, verse 5. For as a young man marries a young woman, so your sons will marry you. And as a groom rejoices over his bride, so your God will rejoice over you. Hosea 2.19. I will take you to be my wife forever. I will take you to be my wife in righteousness and justice and love and compassion. And then we move all the way to the end. It starts in the beginning in Genesis. And all the way to the end, marriage is seen in Revelation 19. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory because the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his wife has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, write, those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb are fortunate. He also said to me, these words of God are true. And just a thought, if we were really able to fully embrace this analogy, I wonder what our marriages would really look like. Because I think if we recognized that this marriage that we exist in embodies and shows off what God's thought of us is. From all of history. Wow. That he would allow us to carry that along. That he would allow us to be little pictures of that everywhere. I don't know that I think about that very often, right? I mean, do, it, in a room full of married couples, however many are in here, and some aren't, I realize that, and some are too young. Thankfully, you're not there yet. But in a world, in a room that's full, full of them, how many of you have ever walked into a room and thought, wow, look at all of these little embodiments of Christ in the church. Look at all of these little symbols of what God feels about us, of what he thinks about us. It, in Paul's second letter in, the, in, in Corinthians, it says, so we make it our goal to please him. That was Paul's ultimate goal. I think that would be our ultimate goal, even in marriage. 
if we saw what God really thought of the imagery. That God, I just want to please you. <laughs> I just want to, I just want to, I, I say I want to please you in all things. I'm going to add, I'm going to add marriage to that, God. A lot of times I don't think about it in that way, but I'm going to add marriage to that, God. It takes us to this third purpose of marriage, which we move from not only functional, but this sacramental, this picture, but also finally this transformational purpose in marriage. Paul says, hey, my goal is to please Christ, period. In 2 Corinthians 5.15, Paul writes this, And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. I've been around the church quite a while, and I, I, I I haven't done a whole lot of marriage counseling so maybe I'm the least qualified to be up here, right? But I will say this. I've been in student ministry for a long, long time and been around a whole lot of marriages and been around a whole lot of family counseling. And what I will tell you is there's an awful lot of that that goes on. And when you get right down to it, we're just thinking selfish. <laughs> we just wind up really, really selfish. And I just wonder how much of that would go away. If, again, we realize that he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. That, that's, that when, when, we, when we grab onto that, even in our marriages, that's, that's when transformation takes place. That's when we begin to crucify the urge to make every action and decision about what's best for us. So the challenge is for us to go to the cross just like Jesus and to walk in that new life so that his motivations and his purposes and his favor are what really dominate us. Then we get to be transformed and our spouses get to be transformed and our families get to be transformed. 2 Corinthians 5.18, and this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Driving force in our lives to be reconcilers. To be, to be reconciled to God, but then also that our lives would be used to help other people find Reconciliation. certainly takes our eyes off of ourselves, doesn't it? Maybe that's the way that we, as the video showed a minute ago, rethink marriage. Because in a room, maybe not too unlike this, a spouse came walking down at one point, and one of you stood here, And I have done quite a few weddings. And what I will tell you is, whether I'm standing here or whether I'm standing right here, and they're looking out, I have yet to be at a wedding where the bride and groom are looking at each other in a mirror. No, where are their eyes? 
They are focused on each other. And somehow, we wind up in, at best, good marriages. And I'm going to suggest we're often sitting there because our eyes wound up all over us. The challenge that Paul says is, let your eyes be on the Savior and then let him work through you in a transforming way so that you're able to love the one that you made that covenant relationship with the way that I love you. Will you close your eyes for me? So we're in the room feels a little bit like a wedding. I want to take you back just a moment to some vows. I don't want you to say them out loud. That's not what I'm asking. All I want you to do is listen. And I want you to ask God. God, what What do these vows say to me? I take you to be. Words that speak acceptance and change and trust. Where are you in that? My lawfully wedded wife, my lawfully wedded husband, a relationship started And being described with that word lawful, that the state recognizes it, that other people recognize it, that it's a relationship that's been built with community surrounding it. And the question is, is community still surrounding your relationship? Are you allowing people in to be a blessing to you, to be a challenge to you, to be an encouragement to you? They were all there at one point as your cheerleader. To have and to hold from this day forward. Scripture has these words, I am my beloved's and he is mine. So in the complexities and the disappointments and the hurts and the excitement and in the great joy in all of it, there is this reality of permanence there Do they sense that from you? Do you value them in a way that speaks out permanence, no matter what? Do your words speak that? For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, there's a reality statement right there. Highs, lows. This says the covenant is sufficient for all of them. So here's the question. Were today's challenges opportunities to showcase that God is helping you be the right person for your spouse? Or were today's challenges opportunities that tempted you into questioning if they were the right one for you? To love. Love. (laughs) Wow. Where's your center board? Is it in? Did you drop it in or are you all over the map? 
and to cherish. Prizing each other, placing proper value on the marriage and the one loved, I would say this, cherishing one another is the inoculation to coveting. Until death do us part. Again, a value that speaks to permanence. Maybe I'm just a traditionalist. I don't know. I've watched a couple of those wedding shows on TV and I see people writing all kinds of funky vows. Something kind of simple like that just speaks to me about where God is in this. Father, thanks for letting us start off by just seeing what you think about marriage. Just by being reminded. And it's a big deal. And God, I'm just praying that tonight, for those that aren't married, that God, they would be challenged by just the amazing love that you feel for us. The amazing way in which you've created us to experience that love once we've received it from you. God, for those of us that are in that relationship, that marriage relationship, may this be a series that builds us up in you and with each other. So that good to great does happen. And if there's something beyond great, God, I think we'd all say, give me that too. Thanks, God, for this moment. In Jesus' name.